Amen. You may be seated. Open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5, uh, Ruth chapter 1. And if you need a pew Bible, there should be one close to you there. And you can turn to page 222, I think it is, 222. We're going to be jumping in the deep end today. There's a lot, there's two big themes that we're going to look at in this passage to apply. And so um, it will be a journey together. So perhaps you've heard the names, perhaps you've heard the names are synonymous with devastation and loss and heartache. The names are this, Charlie, Sandy, Andrew, Harvey, Katrina, Maria. You know, those names along with countless tornadoes and other storms have left destruction in the wake totaling in the billions of dollars. In the case of the most recent storm in the Bahamas, we are once again reminded of how grim the more human aspects of such storms and devastations cause. For those hardest hit in Abaco and Grand Bahama, the psychological distress of experiencing trauma and sadness and anxiety and grief in terms of loss of loved ones, Uh, Their homes, their meager possessions, and their livelihood just seems insurmountable. Psychologist Dr. Kirk Christie, who lives in Nassau, says people are feeling helpless. They're fatalistic. They're negative. They're depressed. This hurricane would be termed a meteorological disaster. And a disaster is defined as trauma that overwhelms a community's ability to cope. So can you imagine the hopelessness, the sense of helplessness, of being displaced with perhaps nowhere to turn? And yet in our world, in our day, uh, there is help from the world. We really do try to, as Americans, and I know other nations do as well, try to lift up these people, try to minister to and meet their needs to shower compassion upon them. But what if you lived in a time where no such help was coming? What if you lived in a broken society where there was nowhere really to turn, nowhere to look for for help? How would you cope? How would you manage? How would you provide for your family? Uh, This morning, we are going to read of such a family, a family in the midst of a disaster that we're not familiar with so much in our modern times. But for them, it was just as devastating, maybe actually more in the sense of their lives and livelihood as the disasters are today. So let's look at Ruth 1, 1 through 5, and let's read about this family. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malin and Kilin. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabites took wives. The name of the one was Orpha. And the other, Ruth, they lived there about ten years. Both Millian and Killian died, 
so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this passage this morning, we feel the weight. We feel the weight of despair and hopelessness in the situation. But we know, because we know the rest of the story, that there is hope here. And so this morning, as we wrestle through these issues to apply to our lives, I pray that you would help us to to see the underlining hope that this message brings to us, that your word is to us, and encourage us. Father, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage today, in our passage, is a story of need and of suffering and trials of a small family in the midst of a natural disaster. It's a famine. Um, It is a story of misguided steps taken in order to deal with our difficulties and of the disastrous consequences that was faced by those who were left behind, so to speak. But by, at the same time, the story again points to this wondrous saving purpose of God that often begins, and it's so interesting to me, when you read the Scripture, you see God's plan unfold so magnificently in people's troubles and their suffering and when things just seem the bleakest. That's what we see here in the book of Ruth. So today we're going to work through this text concerning several application points. So the first thing we want to look at is knowing God's loving providence is at work in a broken world. The second thing we want to look at is keep God's central in decisions made in this broken world. And then the third thing is trust in the peace of Christ in this broken world. So as we think about the idea of to know God's loving providence is at work, to know that His loving providence is His work in a broken world, we need to remember the setting. We talked about it last week. It's in the days when the judges ruled. So things were bad. Things were bleak. Things were a national mess. And at the same time in this passage, there is a famine in the land. So as the people are going through their cycle of sins, there is also famine. Now this was no ordinary land. It was a land the Lord had promised to give His people, the descendants of Abraham, when He rescued them from slavery. Um, It was a place described as the land flowing with milk and honey. It was the promised and fruitful land where food was abundant, where the Lord's people could enjoy the good life that He had promised them. And so the question that we come to as we look at this text to begin with is, is why in the world is there a famine in the land? Uh, Why is there no food there when God had promised abundantness? Is it the result of sin in a fallen world? It's just it's a broken world and that's the way it is. Is it Mother Nature doing her thing, whatever that is? Or is there something more meaningful for us to grasp in this story? Well, the book of Ruth makes no specific link uh, of the famine with any sort of judgment or punishment from God. The underlining chronological setting of the book and the textual connections make it hard to miss that this was what was going on at the time. When God made a covenant 
with his people, he explained the implications to his servant Moses. And Moses told the people. There were great and wondrous covenant promises to behold. I will be your people. You will, um, you will be my, you will, I will be your God. You will be my people. And, and everything that, that flows from that. But also there were great and terrible covenant curses that resulted from unfaithfulness on Israel's part. The Lord's warning of punishment was no and is no idle threat. God never, ever compromises His holiness. And so in Deuteronomy 28, for example, uh, God points out that uh, one of the curses upon the land would be that the heavens over their heads would be as bronze, that the earth under their feet would be as iron, and that the Lord would make rain of their land as powder. In other words, one of the covenant curses was famine. Therefore, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a great famine, and the Lord was acting in accordance with His holiness and the warnings that He had given them. So we can't miss that this famine is both judgment for, co for covenantal disobedience, but it is also, as all such things are in the Scripture, a wondrous wake-up call to repentance. God was saying, I want you to wake up. I want you to hear me. I want you to turn back to me. He is being a loving father. It seems harsh. But He is being a loving Father here to them, calling them to repent. So here in the book of Ruth, what we're given is, is like the, the veil is removed so that we can actually see glimpses into the mysterious providence of God. The Heidelberg Catechism seeks to help us to understand the scriptural teaching of providence better so that we have a greater insight into our great God. This is what the Heidelberg says. The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, Fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. When it comes to the providence of God, especially in terms of disasters, I think John Piper has, has spoken of it more eloquently than anyone. He, he says this, God has hundreds of thousands of purposes, most of which will remain hidden to us until we are able to grasp them at the end of the age. So when any disaster comes upon the land, comes upon the nation. God has hundreds and thousands of purposes in that. Erwin Lutzer adds this, God has purpose for each individual. For some, His purposes is that their days on earth will end when disaster strikes. For the survivors, there are other opportunities to rearrange priorities and focus on what really matters. 
Therefore, if we are to understand as God's people, God in a better way, we must understand two biblical truths that stand in tension throughout the Scripture. And that is this. Truth number one, Isaiah 45, 7 says this. Now listen to these words. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do these things. And so do you hear what he's saying? He not only accepts the responsibility of disasters, He's actually claiming them here in this text. He and He alone has the power and authority to bring about both prosperity and disaster and to wheel and to woe both good and bad. So that's one tension. The second tension is this. Secondly, God does not delight in the suffering of humanity. He cares about the world and its people. Let me give you two verses. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Ezekiel 18, 23. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but it is pleased when they turn from their wicked ways. Those are the two issues that we have to have in balance. That God is a loving and caring God, but He is a just God. Those hold there. And the only thing we can do is His people, and here's the thing, you know, we as finite beings cannot grasp that. We cannot judge our infinite God. He is not obligated to tell us everything that He's up to. It is not necessary for us to know God's purposes before we bow to His authority. So what we do is we read these words and we believe them and we trust them knowing that as finite beings we can't work out the details. But that's what Scripture teaches. That He is in control. So the fact that we trust in Him even though He has not not revealed the details is exactly the kind of faith that delights His heart. So there's two applications with really in this big application for us. And that is first of all to understand what what the Scripture teaches about His sovereignty and His providence. They're both there. His sovereignty and His providence. His love and His mercy. They're all there. Secondly, we need to trust by faith that in His sovereignty and providence that He is good. When hard providences fall upon us, it is very easy to to say, why, Lord, why? Here, what we see, and what we'll see as the book of Ruth unfolds, is that God is good behind it all. The question is, is from Romans 8.28, do not all things work together for good? For those who love God? For those who are called according to His purpose? Yes, absolutely. He is our great God. He is a great providential God who holds all these things in His hands. Now let's consider a second Uh, application point here for us out of this passage. Secondly, we want to keep God central in decisions made in this broken world. We want to keep God central. 
Now, in, in, in the midst of these providential issues, okay, so we've been talking about God's providence. In, in the midst of this providence of famine here, to turn his people back to him, there's a family in Bethlehem in Judea. Bethlehem is known, was known as a fertile place of plenty where the normally abundant grain harvest provided much to eat. Uh, Bethlehem, which means literally house of bread, became the house of no bread. And this family began to suffer with the rest that were in the region. The head of his household was Elimelech. Now, it was a great name for an Israelite to have because it means God is king or God is my king. And it expressed the right attitude that God's people should have had, living in, in submission to him under his rule as a loving sovereign. Yet the tragedy of these verses, however, is that Elimelech did not, at least at this time, live up to his name. You would think that with the name, my God is king, that there would be hope even in famine. But that is not the case. The house of bread that the king who provides would be turned away from, and he would take his family and trust uh, to someplace else that would provide for he and his family. Now, the exact details of this are not provided. But the overall text seems to suggest that, that they were not submitting to God's rule. They were like the rest of the Israelites of his generation, and they did what they saw was fit in their own eyes. And so when they went to live a while in the country of Moab, they were thus turning their back away from God. And, and again, where did they turn it to? They turned it to Moab. Now, that's interesting too here in the text. Um, and why is that a big deal? Well, because Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, forbade Moabites to worship in God's house or Israelites to befriend them. Why would this be? Well, you may remember in Scripture the Moabites originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. Moab's king Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. Their women were a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness, seducing them to, false, to worshiping false gods. And they had recently just oppressed the Israelites in the days of Eglon in, in Judges chapter 3. So what you see here is this. Everything, absolutely everything about Moab spells alienation from God and His promises. Everything does. So Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, leaves the house of bread, to uh, the place of promise and provision, and goes to Moab, the place of oppression and disgrace, to find food for his family. One scholar noted, the very idea of going from the house of bread to Moab for refuge and provisions should be ludicrous. Shouldn't have Elimelech read the famine through the lens, the warnings of Scripture? Shouldn't he have connected the famine with the moral crisis of rebellion against the providence of God and Israel? Should he have fled the land? Shouldn't he have instead turned to God and trusted in His promise and provision? When we read the chapter, it just seems like, what are you doing, man? Come on! And yet, we could ask the same question of ourselves, couldn't we? What would we do? 
What would we do to save our families? What would we do to feed our children? You see, when we try to understand whatever circumstances we're in, particularly our sufferings, without a true view of the Scriptures firmly in place, we will tend to misunderstand them and misinterpret them. However, when we interpret God's providence through Scripture, we will learn to hear in our sufferings in our pains, and in our trials, what God would have us to know. Again, do not all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. On the big level in the Scripture, the Lord would have us know that His purposes of suffering are at least these things. To discipline us and cause us to repent. To bring, uh, to bring about a, a true reliance upon Him, a true trust in Him. To reward us. It talks about when we suffer, we actually have rewards in heaven as, as New Testament believers because we're in Christ and we're suffering with Christ. And also we see that the sufferings of Christ uh, remind us, or, or our sufferings remind us of the sufferings of Christ. Back to the text, when things went from bad to worst, we are told that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And that she was, the, the word is left with, left with her two sons. Uh, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, and after that they lived there about ten years, and then both her sons died. And so, get the picture. Naomi is left alone by herself with her daughters-in-law in, in a foreign land, and she has no grandchildren. She left where there was no bread. And what's even more important here is that there's no seed in the family of Elimelech. When we do what is right in our own eyes without regard for the ways of the Lord, we are in danger of making decisions that will take us down a spiraling path of destruction. And never think for a moment, never think for a moment that these decisions only affect us as individuals. They don't. They affect people around us. You know, most of us never intend to turn our backs on the Lord. And, and even if we do, we're, oh, it's only be for this little short time. But, but uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this unfold. Uh, making unethical financial decisions. Um, getting in an unwise business venture with someone you know you shouldn't be in business with. Engaging in a relationship that should not be. Not only these matters, but each of us carries around some kind of legitimate burden or pain that may cause us, like eliminate, not to consider the way of the Lord, but to handle things in our own way. Each of us can go about with a burden of depression or a burden of disease and sickness, a, a, a constant demand of caring for a loved one who's ill, a desire to, to not be single anymore. A desire for personal retribution and betrayal. Uh, uh, desiring just help as a single parent. Grief over a child who's made 
poor decisions in life. These issues and many others make us feel alone. They make us feel helpless. They make us feel anxious. They make us feel alienated even by God. The pounding of pain or worse, the numbness that that comes, uh, whether physical or emotional, may bring you to question any so-called goodness of God. You may wonder why. You may wonder, how could He do this? You may wonder, where are you? But friends, we can trust in the peace of Christ in this broken world. And that's where this passage brings us. We can trust in the peace of Christ in this broken world. Now, here's the thing. Nowhere, you know... Chris and I were talking about scripture the other day and 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 how I, I kinda I started talking about how I view preaching, okay? And one of the things I'll just tell you is that I, I look at preaching as trying to show you how the Bible unfolds itself. So when you're following along, what I'm trying to look at most of the time is the big picture of what this particular text is communicating. There could be all sorts of things on the peripheral, but that's you know, I try to really hit the center of biblical truth there and what it's what it's communicating. And the other thing is with that is, is I, and as I'm trying to get you to see the, the wholeness and fullness of God's Word, especially in this life, because I really do believe as we just finished up the Lord's Prayer that we live in evil days where we're tempted. And so when Christ tells us to pray that we would uh, be delivered from temptation and delivered from evil, or not led into temptation, delivered from evil, I think that's the reality that we live in. And so you see Elimelech here. What he's doing is he's, he's making his own decisions without thinking about God. And how many times do we do that? And so what I try to, 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 to bring about when we go through our, our sermons each week is to think about what is God saying in this passage and how does it relate to me and how can it draw me closer to God so I don't go down these kind of paths. In understanding God's Word, here's the thing. He does not promise instant relief or immunity from trouble or sorrow. I want you to understand that. He doesn't anywhere in Scripture. I know of no one, no one who's enjoyed heaven here on earth for real. We talk about it, but I don't know of anyone who has. We live in a cursed world and the vestiges of our sinful nature still plague at us. It nips at our heels. At times it will subtly ensnare us and lead us down a spiral path until we turn and are rescued by the Lord. You know, as a matter of fact, the ensnare of sin and resulting hard providence of God actually leads in this passage to a great rescue of Naomi and her daughter, her daughter-in-law, Ruth. That not only applies to them, but because of her, it applies to you today. What do I mean by that? Well, above and beyond the misguided plan of Elimelech, God was at work even in their sin for His good and holy ends. Think of it this way. Without Elimelech's decision to flee from famine to Moab, without his sons taking Moab out wives, without the death of all three of these men, without Naomi's great loss and pain, without the providence and grace of God and all of this, Ruth would have never become the great, 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 great mother of Jesus Christ. 
our true kinsman redeemer. That does not in any way give us an excuse to go down that path of sin. But it does point out this, that there is grace, grace, grace. Think of it, we are His people. He loved us so much that He he turned this mess into a holy moment. Into His providential plan that you and I's brother and sisters in Christ can be rescued. On the cross, Jesus cried out these words. And you almost could hear Naomi crying these words out too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and what those words reveal is this from Isaiah. Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. You see, the suffering He endured was due to us. And it is that suffering by which we can be saved from eternal death to eternal life. And I hope you see in all this that His providential guidance, that His handiwork in this particular situation, that Jesus was made an offering of sin for us. That He died in our place, on our account. That He might bring us peace with God and near to Him. Brothers and sisters, again, trust in the peace of Christ that is in this broken world. When we look around at the devastation around us, when we look around at the wars and the rumors of wars, Jesus told us that these are birth pains of the coming kingdom. When you are going through the sufferings that you go through, When you are feeling helpless and hopeless, trust in the Lord and the peace of Christ. We really don't know what ends are behind it. But does He not work all things for our good? Let's pray.